0: Many of you know it. We've been talking about it during this series. The Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And then this short little phrase, the communion of saints. It's easy to run right past that phrase, but we're going to talk about it for just a moment. The communion of saints. Now, many people have thought that this phrase, communion of saints, is really just another reference to the church of Jesus, the body of Christ, the church. But that's really not the case. In Latin, the communion of saints is referred to as the communio sanctorum. And when referred to persons, it is the spiritual union of the members of the Christian church, living and dead, those on earth, those in heaven. And for our Catholic brothers and sisters that believe in purgatory, those also that are in kind of a state of purification. They are all part of a single mystical body with Christ as the head in which each member contributes to the good of all and shares in the welfare of all. Now the earliest known use of the term uh, to refer to this belief in this kind of mystical bond uniting both the living and the dead in a confirmed hope is by a guy named Saint Nicetus. And the term has played a central role in kind of the formulations of the Christian creed, particularly the Apostles' Creed. The word sanctorum in the phrase communio sanctorum can also be understood as referring not only to holy persons, but to holy things, namely the blessings that the holy persons share with each other, including their faith, the sacraments, and other gifts they have as Christians, as followers of Christ. Now the Communion Sanctorum, the Communion of Saints, embraces all Christians, including those whose lives may not be considerably marked by holiness. In the New Testament, you probably know this, the term saints generally refers to everyone who has been baptized and confesses Jesus as Lord. But the Christian tradition also also lifts up some people for kind of special respect for veneration. Now, I want to say a word about this real quick because this has caused, like, division among some Protestants and Catholics. We, of course, are part of the Protestant faith, but we have a lot of Catholics and brothers and sisters in that faith who kind of believe a little differently. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer proposes this kind of honor roll. If you've ever read in the 11th chapter, you know there's kind of a list of kind of exemplars of heroic faith. The writer mentions Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses and Rahab, Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel, or just a few of the people that they mention. And they all kind of pointing us toward uh, and reflecting the holiness of God in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at Hebrews in just a moment, but it's important to understand one of the reasons why these heroes of faith are mentioned. You may or not, may not know that in the early 2nd century, Christians gathered for worship at the tombs of the martyrs. They celebrated the power of God's grace in the lives of these men and women who have given their lives for the faith. They actually prayed to God for spiritual and temporal favors to be granted through the intercession of the martyrs. In the early church, the phrase communio sanctorum had primary reference to this bond between the faithful on earth and the faithful who had gone before, especially those that had been crowned with martyrdom. Now all saints, again, are called saints. All Christians are called saints. But the word saint really became kind of a title referring to exemplary lives among people, especially among martyrs. And the church would point to scriptures like Hebrews 12, 23, and it indicates that as Christians we are wayfarers. And we're looking forward to joining one day the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Sometimes they would mention Revelation 6, which indicates that the martyrs beneath the heavenly altar still await their full vindication. They are one with us, and we are one with them. And we're kind of yearning together for this completion of God's plan of salvation, this establishment of the kingdom of God. This God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And why is this so? Well, one of the reasons is that we live in a world where many believe that this is all there is to it. That this life that we know on this earth is it. But yet we as Christians are called to bear witness to the fact of this solidarity. Of this communio sanctorum, this communion of saints. A solidarity secured by our communion with Jesus the crucified, risen, and coming-again Savior, both the living and the dead who are alive in Christ. Now let me say this. Admittedly, our Catholic friends believe that there is this lively interaction. There is this exchange of spiritual goods between ourselves and those of us and those who have gone on ahead of us. Just as Christians, just as Protestants request the intercession of brothers and sisters and we ask them to pray for us while we're on earth, so Catholics rely on the intercession of the saints in heaven. Many of you have heard some of your Catholic friends talking about praying foremost to the Virgin Mary. They invoke their aid in prayers. They recognize the prayers of the saints. And also prayers with the saints directed toward Jesus and to the Father. And they believe that all blessings come from God. They believe that when the saints in heaven act, it is God who acts through them. Now, Protestants stand over here on our side, (laughs) and we generally do not affirm the intercession of the saints in heaven. We don't ask for the saints to intervene on our behalf, because we don't really find any explicit biblical passage warranting that practice. We're puzzled by it. Sometimes we are put off by it. Sometimes, to be honest with you, in ways that we should not, we have kind of expressed that Catholics are kind of superstitious, And they're weird when it comes to praying to saints in the afterlife or placing emphasis on things like objects or relics. But what we sometimes miss as Protestants is the fact that all Christians at all times have asked, how is it that God prepares believers for the vision and the fullness of his glory? And scripture just does not present us with a lot of details about what happens specifically to people when they die. Most evangelicals, most Protestants, us in that faith, we believe that we enter immediately into the presence of God, into the fullness of God's glory. Catholics, on the other hand, believe ordinarily that they go through kind of a period of further preparation, what they call purgatory. Today, however, rather than debate that, I just want to affirm one abiding truth that I think all Christians, all Christ followers, past, present, and future, can agree on. And that is no true Christian, living or dead, can be outside the Communio Sanctorum. The fellowship of all who live in the crucified, risen, reigning, and returning Lord Jesus Christ. Within the body of Christ, we know that we're to pray for one another. We're to offer up sufferings for the sake of Christ, according to Colossians in ways we don't fully understand, in ways that we fully don't even see at this moment. We live in communion with those who have gone on before us, and we strive to realize on earth a life together that hopefully fully anticipates the communion in the church in the life to come. So in the time remaining, what I want to focus on is one way that we can commune with the saints who have gone on before us. The saints that we talk about in Scripture. The saints that some of you have talked about, even though you never met them, as Gretchen was talking about, a grandparent who may have been very faithful in their faith. And to do this, I want to reflect back again on the passage in Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about uh, uh, this communion of saints. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer says, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. In other words, there is this multitude of people, of faithful people, who have ran the race of faith before us, and in some mysterious yet tangible way, it's kind of like they're sitting in the grandstand, and they're cheering for us to just keep running. Just don't quit, because when you run a race, as some of you know, the start of the race can be lots of fun. But what really matters what really matters is how you finish. This is one of my favorite images in all of scripture about the Christian life, the image of a race. Let's have a quick show of hands here. How many of you in this room have ever taken up running, have ever taken up running at least one time in your life as a form of exercise? Anybody? How many of you when you took it up were ever tempted to quit? How many of you did quit? Yeah, of course. I was out of town this past week, and I met a guy, sat next to a guy, actually. And he told me that he had wakened that morning to take his customary three-mile run before breakfast. Now, that was impressive enough by itself, but then he went on to tell me, and by the way, it was 116 degrees where I was at in the peak of the day. But during the conversation, he told me that he used to weigh over 300 pounds and he was now down to 180 pounds. And he had done it by running marathons. At the end of the conversation, I told him, You know, you're the kind of people that my kind of people secretly dislike. <laughs> <laughs> but I was curious about this thing of marathons. So I checked online to see how many people run in marathons, and it's astounding. Just in the LA Marathon, the Los Angeles Marathon alone, get this, over 18,000 people, 18,000 brave, motivated, skinny, masochistic, overachieving people (laughs) run in that marathon. Some of the people, being California, of course, are a little out of the ordinary. There was a guy who ran in makeup, circus makeup. He called himself T-Bone the Clown. Another guy dressed up literally as a flower and called himself the flower man. There were 13 people who actually ran hooked together in a costume designed to look like a human centipede. That's how they ran the LA Marathon. Now the start of the race apparently was fun. T-Bone the Clown was shaking hands with the crowd, waving, laughing at people. Centipede looked friskier than any centipede looked or had a right to look. And then the race began. The gun sounded. The first stage of a race, as I'm told, is a runner experiences what is called the pleasure stage. When you run in the pleasure stage, your body's loose, your heart's pumping, your blood's flowing, your head's clear, your lungs breathe deep, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, fish are jumping, cotton's high, daddy's rich, and mama's good looking. It's called the runner's high how long the runner's high lasts depends on your conditioning. For me, it goes about 12 to 13 feet. Okay? <laughs> then, if you're a runner, you know this. The running becomes drudgery. And after drudgery, it becomes effortful. And after effortful, it becomes laborious. And if you keep going long enough, apparently you reach a point where the temptation to quit is overwhelming. Your legs feel searing pain. Your lungs feel like they literally have burning coals at the bottom of them. And runners speak of this stage as hitting the wall. To run to this stage, to hit the wall and keep going, listen, that is really the test of most runners. The race is usually completed or abandoned when you hit the wall. At this stage in the LA Marathon, things got very interesting. T-Bone was not laughing with the crowd anymore. Mr. Flowerman wilted into oblivion. The human centipede was hanging over the fence. All 13 centipedal stomachs in revolt. At the finish line, it's interesting. People just kept dribbling in a few at a time. The start of the race was fun. It was exciting. It was easy. But finishing, finishing was hard work. Finishing is what counted. So here's the question. Will you run the race of faith even when it gets hard? Will you keep going even when you hit the wall? Because here's what I know from this passage in Hebrews 12. The race, every race will have hindrances and setbacks. But here's what I also know. I also know that Hebrews says we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that remind us through their words and their deeds that running the race is worth it. We have a grandstand of saints cheering us on. And we have to remember that these heroes of faith were not superhuman. In most cases, they were deeply flawed, seriously challenged, completely ordinary people who just kept running. Now, we don't have time to look at all of them by any means, but I just want to look at one of them briefly because Hebrews actually talks about this guy at length. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, "...refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward." By faith he left Egypt unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Now many of you have heard Moses' story and his race. It didn't start off very well. After taking the life of a fellow Egyptian, Moses ran into the desert. And really he thought his days were numbered. And it was in the desert, 40 years in the desert, that Moses came face to face with his destiny because God called Moses from this burning bush experience. God comes to Moses and he says, listen, your race isn't over. I have big plans for you. But Moses, of course, wasn't too sure. In fact, the book of Exodus describes five objections that Moses makes. This is always true of people when God calls them. You will have to set aside the hindrances and setbacks that will weigh you down. And Moses gives many objections. I'm just going to focus on one. One hindrance. I think it's very common in our day. Let me explain it this way. There is a guy that all of you know. You have heard him, met him before. Some of you have known him longer than some other people in this room. But this is a guy that everyone will know. He loves to sail. This guy is in tremendous physical condition and he eats unbelievably healthy food, even though we can never get our kids to eat it. His name is Popeye the Sailor Man. And when he was sad, remember when Popeye would make a mistake, he would mess up, especially when he felt inadequate? Popeye would always say the same thing I am what I am. And if he was really having a bad day and he was really convinced of his inadequacy he would say something like I am what I am and that's all that I am. In other words don't get your hopes up too much. (laughs) And this is really kind of the lament of the human race. I believe if the great saints who are sitting in the grandstand could cheer us on if they could say anything to us I think one of the things they would say is that the Hindrance of inadequacy keeps so many people from running the race. And it keeps so many people from finishing the race. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I've done too many bad things. What I want you to know, according to Moses' life, is you're going to have to find another excuse. For you, my friends, have been called by God. And it's very ironic because I imagine Moses would say what most of us would say. He would have said something like, God, if you'd have come to me 40 years ago, if you'd have come to me when I was younger and stronger and more educated, when I had power and I had status and Pharaoh actually liked me, I could have done something for you then, God. Now I'm just a broken down shepherd. I'm a fugitive from justice. I'm a murderer. I can't do what you ask, God. I am what I am. Yet God comes to Moses and he says to him what he says to you and me. And to a million Moseses in this world. I know who you are, God says. And it does not matter. The reason it does not matter is because I'm going to be with you, Moses. Your sin, your guilt, your limitations, your shortcomings. All of those things may be true about you. But they are not who you are. You yam what you yam, but you yam not yet what you yam gonna be. <laughs> Try saying that five times fast. God says, I'm gonna be with you, Moses, your mind. It's one of the first episodes of grace in the Bible. Some of you are here in this room this morning, and the greatest need in your life is grace. The greatest need you have in your life is to get grace. Completely squared away in your heart and mind. You beat yourself up constantly. You live in guilt and shame over something, probably from the past. You've lied. You've been a thief. You broke a vow. You've been a failure. You're a sinner. I am what I am. And God says, yeah, I know who you are. But the risen one has made it irrelevant. And there are millions and millions of saints exhorting you not to make the same mistake that so many people make. Don't let your inferiority, don't let your inadequacy keep you from staying in the race. Now, I don't know what your hindrance may be, but whatever it is, you're going to have to set it aside probably more than once to run this race of faith. So the communion of saints reminds us That faithful followers of Jesus overcome the challenges of hindrances, and then they get to the very core challenge that every runner faces. The writer says we must run the race with perseverance, which means somewhere along the line you will have to overcome setbacks. Setbacks are inevitable. And a fundamental decision you will have to face is when you face a setback will you jump out of the race, will you abandon it, or will you push through the wall? Let's go back to Moses. He's afraid the Israelites won't listen to him, but in a step of courage, he answers the call from God and he goes to them. And he's terrified, of course, of what the people are going to say to him. But Exodus chapter 4 tells us that Moses and his brother Aaron bring the word from God. They tell the people. They do the signs. And it's unbelievable to them. But the people respond. And they worship God. Now you can imagine this sigh of relief in Moses' life. He's faced down his worst fear. He's actually talked to the people and the people believe him. So the worst is over, right? Then this crazy thing happens. Pharaoh will not play ball. Pharaoh is not interested in granting his demand to let the people go. It's understandable. Pharaoh had a built-in supply of labor. He says, why do you want to take away my labor force? Why are you taking these people from their work? And of course, he makes the labor even more intensive. They now have to go out and collect their own straw to make bricks every day. This is not what Moses signed up for. You know, the Israelites thought, we might as well go to Pharaoh. How bad can it get? It can't really get any worse. And then guess what? It got worse. And if it's just hard for Moses, that Pharaoh responds this way. It's nothing compared to what's going to happen to the people now that they have to labor harder than they're already laboring. And it's interesting. People aren't usually the kind of folks who just look and say, you know, thanks, Moses, for leading us here. Thanks for coming up with this compelling vision to get us out of Egypt. We knew there'd be roadblocks and we knew there'd be setbacks. But you know, ultimately, Moses, this deliverance thing is going to be even more miraculous because now we have to work harder. We're just going to gladly roll up our sleeves and make bricks even longer. It's kind of weird. People aren't like that. They don't do that. In fact, they say to Moses, here's what they say. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh. (laughs) I've never had it quite put that way bad odor with Pharaoh. And have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And here's the deal in that moment, Moses is left alone. Not only with Pharaoh, not only with the Egyptians, but with his own people. Here's when you'll be tempted to quit the most when things in your life don't work out, you'll be tempted to quit. When you run into opposition, but especially when you feel alone. That is Moses. He resists. God calls him. He resists. God calls him. God persists with him. Finally, Moses gives in and says, okay, I'll go. He goes. It looks good. Suddenly, it turns. Pharaoh's against him. Egypt is against him. His own people turn against him. He's now on his own. And here's what he finds out. In that darkest moment of his race, Moses does something that every person has to do. Exodus chapter 5 says, Moses turned again to the Lord. Moses comes back to God. Friends, if there's anything the communion of saints teaches us about the path of faith, it is that we will have to turn over and over and over back to the Lord. Look at the great heroes of faith, men and women. Not only in Scripture, but those that came after Scripture. One of the things that you will see is that in their darkest moments, they kept coming back to God. Every setback, our natural reaction should be, let's go to God. Let's turn everything to God. Let's pour out our heart to God. Let's even be angry if we need to be and hurt if we need to be. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, as people are cheering us on, people we can't see and maybe audibly hear, but they're saying to us, don't quit. This morning, will you say, I'm going to persevere? I realize that hundreds and millions of people have faced hindrances and setbacks, and they finished the race, they kept the course, they won the prize, and so will I. If you will do that, you will see what Moses and Ruth and David and Solomon and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Nehemiah have seen. You will see what James and Joseph and Mary and John and Peter and Paul and Dorcas and Lydia have seen. You will see what St. Augustine and St. Francis of Assisi and Martin Luther and John Wesley and Corey ten Boone and Diedrich Bonhoeffer and Fanny Crosby have seen. You will see what Billy Graham got to finally see this past year. You will see the glory of the one and only, the bright, the morning star, the first, the last, the alpha and the omega, the ancient of days. We will see the glory of Christ. Everybody in this room, and I mean everybody, has a race to run and not one person in this room has an easy race. Maybe one of the things that you ought to do, maybe today, maybe this afternoon, maybe next week, next Sunday, and every Sunday after, maybe one of the things you ought to do is just say, you know what? I'm going to be a great cloud of witness for somebody in this room. I'm going to ask God to remind me to regularly come up to them and to cheer them on and just to say to them, you just keep running. Because if the communion of saints means anything, It needs to be a place where we can be a cloud of witnesses for one another. And we can join with that heavenly group. Wherever they are. However they experience the afterlife. And we can just hear them say as well, keep running. We're going to do that for just a moment. We're going to get prepared to come to the table. We're going to do it a little differently than we normally do today. But before we do that, Robbie uh, and Gretchen mentioned earlier about so many wonderful servants and volunteers we have here. But sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you get a little weary. So this morning, what I'd like to do is just take about four minutes, and I just want to address kind of some specific people and groups in our church. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to join me And kind of be like the great cloud of witnesses for them. And just to remind them to just keep running. Okay? We put this statement on the screen for you. Let's start with this. Let's start with some amazing people in our children and youth ministry. Our children's ministry, Upstreet, and our youth ministry, C5, is so vital to our church. And if you serve in any capacity in those areas, I don't know if it's nursery or teaching, or checking kids in, or life group leaders on Wednesday night, whatever it is, let me say this to you. Somewhere along the line, you have been tempted to quit. The reason I know that is because kids and teenagers can be squirrely. If you don't know what squirrely means, it means goofy. It means weird sometimes, hard. You don't quite get them. Apparently, they learned it from a lot of your kids and teenagers in C5 and Upstreet. Do you know how important the race is that you are running? I mean, do you really know how important? I mentioned this to you before, but one of the reasons that I'm a pastor, one of the reasons that I love God to this day is because of people like you who invested in me as a child and a teenager. To this very moment, I can vividly remember the names of the people and the stories they told. I can still see those old, crazy flannel boards with biblical characters stuck to them, the felt of them. I remember doing sword drills with my Bible and memorizing scriptures. Listen, not to win a gift card to GameStop, but to win a piece of bubble gum. I remember youth group trips and all-night lock-ins. and I remember youth volunteers who impacted my life to this very day. So here's what I want to say to some of you. Don't you ever believe for one moment the lie that what you do in those rooms on Wednesday and Sunday do not matter. For fear of sounding melodramatic, it could be the most important thing we do in this church. First of all, It's important because you're molding the lives of kids and I promise you don't ever think for one second that they don't drink in what you say and do in their life and remember it for years to come. Second of all, we have people who drop their kids off on Sunday morning and who let their kids come on Wednesday night because they know that their lives are messed up and they want to be a part of a service to be able to figure out how does God fit into my life? And you literally could be part of the reason that they come to faith in Christ. You literally could be part of the reason that their whole family becomes followers of Jesus. So I want to say this to you, and I want to ask you to join with me. To those of you who serve in Upstreet regularly and in C5 on Wednesday night, I want you to know that we appreciate you, we are behind you. So I want everybody now with just one voice, okay, we're going to say what's on the screen. I want you to say to these folks, what? Just keep running. The Communio Sanctorum. Let me address another group of folks, and that's the arts and service programming teams here. You know, most of us really don't realize the number of hours and hours of prep and prayer and creativity and rehearsing that goes just to make one Sunday morning happen. I mean, folks, these tables didn't just create themselves they didn't just pop up and walk in this auditorium and say oh this is where i have to be today music doesn't just happen worship doesn't just take place slides don't just come up on a screen some of you need to hear very clearly this morning that week after week month after month this team has broken the huddle and they have lined up and they have played their hearts out And if you're a member of this team, I want to say something to you today. When you begin to wonder if you really need to rehearse that song another time, or sit through another planning session, or crawl out of bed for that fifth Sunday in a row, or change that stupid light angle one more time, just remember, you could be the difference. You could be the reason that a person comes home to God. You could be the reason that a life is touched and a soul is stirred and a spirit begins to heal. So together this morning, this great cloud of witnesses here, we're going to lift our voices and we're going to say to all those folks on the arts and the worship and the creative team, what are we going to say? Just keep running. One more. There's a lot of you who serve in our hospitality and connections ministry. These are folks who greet people, they serve as ushers, they provide assistance at the info desk. They're also the folks who get up early, probably earlier than any of us, and they come and they prepare breakfast so we get to enjoy a time of community, eating and feeding our faces in the cafe. I want to tell you, you, you guys are heroes. I want you to know this morning that every smile and every handshake and every hug and every piece of info and every egg you scramble and every tater tot, thank you, Lord, you fry. Every, listen, every cup of coffee you brew is a collective blanket of love that you cover this community with. So listen, we can be a place where everybody is welcome and nobody is perfect and anything is possible. I want you to know that by feeding our bellies, You're also helping to feed our souls. So together this morning, I want to say to all of you, and the great cloud of witnesses here at Oasis joins me to say what? Just keep running. Now listen, I don't want to leave anybody out. We all know it takes a lot more than those folks for us to do what we do here. Some of you are life group leaders. Some of you are volunteers at Second Saturday. Some of you give your resources Uh, and, and finances to help people with tangible needs. Some of you do projects around the church here to help us operate. Listen, some of you do so much more, not even just in the church, but outside the church. So let's do it this way. Let's kind of wrap up. We're going to come now in just a moment to the table. We're going to celebrate communion together. And in many ways, what we're going to celebrate is the communion of saints, because one day, this is the truth, our faith teaches That all Christ followers, those who have gone on before us, and those who will come after us, and those of us who are present today, we are going to gather around one final table. And in that moment, I promise you, in that moment, all the running will be worth it. The race will be worth it.